Hello, and welcome to the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well. I am really delighted that this episode is sponsored by one of my favourite jewellery brands, Alighieri. During this difficult time, Alighieri will be donating 10% of all online sales to Refuge, the country's largest provider of support to women and children escaping domestic violence. Alighieri is also offering 10% off for Great Women Artists listeners with the code TGWA at checkout. See www.alighieri.co.uk for more. Here are a few words from their founder, Rosh Matani, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Love, which is quickly kindled in the gentle heart, seized this man for the fair form that was taken from me, and the manner afflicts me still. Love, which absolves no one beloved from loving, seized me so strongly with his charm that as thou seest, it does not leave me yet. In the fifth canto of the Divine Comedy, we met with the lustful sinners Paolo and Francesca. They talk of falling in love over a storybook. They read together until they read no more. Their punishment is that they're trapped together in an infernal storm. The infernal storm necklace, a square pendant bearing the number five, is evocative of this infernal storm that is both romantic, tragic, and painful as all love sometimes is. It's a reminder to hang on to it, no matter what. Hello everyone, and welcome to The Great Woman Artist Podcast, with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Woman Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities. So you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the world-renowned art historian, Dr. Melanie Herzog, currently the Professor Emerita of Art History at Edgewood College in Madison, Wisconsin. Melanie Herzog's indefatigable career has focused on issues around race, ethnicity, gender, representation, and artists' encounters across cultural and geographical borders. And she teaches, publishes, and lectures widely on North American art and visual culture. She is the author of numerous books, including one on photographer Milton Rogovin. But the reason why we are speaking to her today is because she also authored two major books on the late, great, trailblazing American artist Elizabeth Catlett. The books titled An American Artist in Mexico and In the Image of the People two of which I highly recommend. Dr. Melanie Herzog is really one of the world's greatest experts and leading scholars on Elizabeth Catlett, who was known for her powerful and political prints and sculptures, who lived in America and Mexico, and still remains one of the most influential historical artists. So I'm so delighted to say 
that today on the Great Women Artists podcast, we will be discussing Elizabeth Catlett. Melanie Herzog, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Well, thank you so much for having me. I am honored and thrilled to be talking with you today about Elizabeth Catlett, and I'm doing well. I hope you're well also. Yes, I'm so good. I'm so excited as well because, you know, thank you so much for coming on. This is such a treat. Elizabeth Catlett is one of the most renowned artists to ever live. She's really known for her powerful sculptures, woodcuts, screen prints, lithography and lino cuts that really explore themes around race and feminism. Yet she is not that widely known in the UK. For those who might be new to her work, I'd just love for you to give us a brief introduction to the kind of work that Elizabeth Catlett produced during her lifetime. Well, you know, I think that the work that she did is perhaps one of the reasons why her work is not as well known as it should be, because her work was fearless, it's radical, it addresses what we now call intersectional identities, but she was doing the work before that term had been invented. So her prints and her sculptures are sometimes interrogations, sometimes celebrations, sometimes representations of resistance of mostly Black women, to multiple forms of oppression. They are calls for justice. They're calls for liberation. They range stylistically from realistic representations to more abstract, emotional works of art. And I would say that they are consistently uncompromising in the political grounding that really drove her life's work as an artist, as an educator, as an activist. Yeah, I love the fact that you use that term emotion as well, because there is just so much in them, even the fact that she just uses something quite simple, like a liner cut or a print. There is so much in there. It almost feels like a kind of modern day Katakulvitz. You know, it's that kind of emotion that I feel is in there. And just for those listeners unaware of Katja Kollwitz's work, she was a German expressionist working at the turn of the century in the 1900s who created psychologically intense lino cuts in response to the horrors of World War One. And I'm glad you mentioned Kollwitz because Katja Kollwitz was one of the artists who she looked to for inspiration. She had some of her oh, wow. prints. At her, oh when my I, gosh! Yeah, when I visited her in Mexico. The first time I was there, I saw Kate Kolvitz prints in her studio and realized, oh, this is an artist she looked to. And she said that she admired her deeply because she brought some of the same sensibilities, the same politics to her work. Absolutely. So when did you first come across Elizabeth's work? I learned about her first while I was in graduate school. Actually, you know how sometimes you see something, but you're not quite ready to see it, and so it doesn't take hold in your soul? So I yeah. know, because I found some old notes when I was cleaning my office, <laughs> I know that I learned about her in a course while I was doing my graduate studio work, and she was talked about in a class, I think it was on art and social consciousness, something like that. And so I had seen her work, and I appreciated it, but it didn't really hook me. And then a few years later, I was introduced to her work by a guest lecturer in a class on women artists. And our guest lecturer was Professor Frida High. So Professor High came in and gave a guest lecture about Black women artists. And 
my brain and my heart were ready at that point. And so that was when I kind of woke up to Elizabeth Catlett's work. I signed up for one of Professor High's classes on African-American art history, and we were assigned to look at one of Elizabeth Catlett's prints. And I became fascinated with the fact that she had been living and working in Mexico since the 1940s. This was now the late 1980s. And I thought, hmm, she's been in Mexico for more than 40 years. And why isn't that something we're talking about? You know, why is yeah. it that we're talking yeah. about her, obviously her commitment to African-American subjects, to representing her experience as a Black woman? Why aren't we also thinking about what Mexico meant to her and to her work? And so I decided I wanted to investigate that question. Can you remember what that one print was that you that you saw and how it made you feel? Why, yes, it was sharecropper. And oh my gosh, I amazing. thought, this is a print, this woman has so much dignity. I mean, it was yeah. one of the most dignified representations of a woman. And she was strong, she was elegant, she was dignified, and the print was also made with such consummate crafting and absolute command of that material of linoleum, the way that every mark was hatched into the linoleum so decisively. And so thinking about what's involved in learning how to work that well with your material and get it to do what you want it to do to express what it is you want to express. And it was a, a color version. So it was from the late 60s. Oh, wow. That was what really, what pulled me in. And then to learn that she had made that print in Mexico. Yeah. And that she had first made it in the 1950s in black and white. And to think about what did that mean for her experience? How did that layer into her life and her sense of herself as a black woman living as an expatriate in Mexico? That's what I wanted to learn more about. Yeah. And, you know, Elizabeth Catler has been associated with also several artistic movements and political periods, including social realism, the Mexican school, the civil rights movement and the black artist movement. I think that's really a kind of testament to her extensive range in championing marginalized people via her artwork. I mean, what do you think really drove her to create the work that she did? I think what drove her to create the work was her commitment to representing what historically hadn't been represented and to representing the experiences of Black women and other people of color, people of color from various parts of the world, people experiencing oppression in various ways. And it was her deep empathy and her solidarity with people struggling for justice, I think, is what motivated her work. When she was a graduate student, she was a student of Grant Wood, the American yes. artist. And he said to her, you need to take as your subjects what you know best. And she said, well, what I know best is Black women. So this is what she took as her subject, a subject that was not represented that often in art and certainly not represented kind of from the perspective of Black women. Black women had been represented by outsiders who yep. were oftentimes objectifying Black women, using yep. the image, the bodies of Black women to signify whatever it is that they wanted to say. But Elizabeth Catlett was one of the first, not the first, because there is a history of Black women artists, and she's part of that lineage. 
And so for her to take on this subject and to represent the subject in a way that claimed space that there hadn't been in the art world was really, yeah. really important. Yeah. And I, I think also just looking at her entire oeuvre as well, she's also someone who's sticking to that work and she's going to make it. You know, I love that quote that she says, we have to create an art for liberation and for life. And you could just tell that she totally stuck to that her entire life. And that is what we see. We see this picture of 20th century in America through her lens. And it's incredible because, you know, we go from the Harlem Renaissance right up until the early noughties. But I want to start at the beginning because Elizabeth Catlett was born in 1915 in Washington, DC, where she was raised and attended university. But I want to get into her childhood in a moment. But first of all, could you tell us a bit about the history of her family? Well, her father passed away before she was born. And he yeah. had been a professor of mathematics at Tuskegee University. Oh, really? And so she was raised by her mother and by her grandmothers. So she grew up in this very women-centered household in Washington, D.C. She had grandparents who had been enslaved in the southern part of the United States. And so she actually grew up hearing their experiences and her grandmother's stories of enslavement. And I think that is part of what instilled in her this drive toward working for justice. One of the things she did as a young person that may have been challenging to her mother and grandmothers because her family also was, you know, respectability was a thing. And she protested against lynching at the wow. Supreme Court. So I believe she was in high school when she did that. So this commitment to justice was something that was strong in her from an early age. And in part, I think it had to do with the stories she heard from her grandmothers. I think it also had to do with her mother, who was doing multiple jobs in the schools, even though she was more highly educated than yep. what sorts of employment were available to her would usually be. And so Washington, D.C. was a segregated city. So yep. Elizabeth Catlett grew up with that consciousness. She wanted to go to school. She had applied to go to Carnegie Technical Institute, and she was admitted and then she was unadmitted on the basis of her race. When they found out she was Black, she was uninvited to attend university there, which is why she went back to Washington, D.C. and went to Howard University, which is a fabulous school. And she had a fabulous education there. Yeah. And so on the one hand, there she was at the school that was really kind of the center of a lot of the conversations, the debates really about what should Black artists do? What should Black art be? What should be represented? What should be the style of art? But that shouldn't allow us to minimize the fact that her choices were limited because of race which yeah. still happens, of course, in this country. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, was art something that was always present in her life growing up? It was. She loved to sew. She loved to make art. She said she one time carved a little sculpture out of a bar of soap, a thing that sometimes kids do in school. <laughs> her mother gave her art materials. And so she did love to draw. And so, yeah, art was always something that she thought of as 
as her form of expression. She always knew since she was little that she wanted to be an artist, which is quite remarkable when you think about how many Black artists would she have known about? Probably not yeah. very many. But am I right in thinking actually at Howard University, she was also taught by Lois Milo Jones? She was. As well as Grant Wood. So she studied with Lois Milo Jones. She took her design classes from her. Elaine Locke, the great philosopher of the Harlem Renaissance, was there. She said she didn't take classes with him, but it was impossible not to kind of be in the orbit of those conversations. So all sorts of really important people were there. The Howard University Art Gallery was there. James Porter actually introduced her to the work of the Mexican muralists while she was there. So she would have had full access to everywhere on the Howard campus. But it would have been quite a shock to go to Iowa, which is one of the whitest, it still is one of the whitest states in the United States. And when she went to the University of Iowa for graduate school, she was not allowed to live in the on-campus housing. So she lived off-campus there. There were very, very few Black students at the University of Iowa, which is a gigantic university. But her roommate while she was in Iowa was the poet Margaret Walker. Yeah, which is incredible. I mean, two absolute legends. (laughs) And they met in graduate school. Yes, yes. So her experience in Iowa would have been very, very different. She said when she met Grant Wood, one of the first things that he said to her was that he was so angry that the daughters of the American Revolution wouldn't allow Marian Anderson to sing in Constitution Hall. Marian Anderson, one of the great African-American singers of the 20th century and the daughters of the American Revolution are white women who claim U.S. ancestry. They're racist, anti-immigrant, obviously, if they're proud of their ancestry going all the way back to the American Revolution, denying that, of course, their people came as immigrants, but they don't tell that part of the story. And so this very exclusionary group that Grant Wood also mocked in one of his paintings. In any case, he said that to her And she realized that what he was doing was he was showing solidarity with her. He was recognizing that he, as a white man, needed to take his stand. He needed to show her right away where he stood and that he, even though the term ally wouldn't have been used back then and probably solidarity wouldn't have been used back then, but that's what he was expressing when he said that to her. And he became her most important professor in graduate school, even though she changed her emphasis from painting to sculpture. And he was a painter, but still his mentorship was so important for her and his support was so important for her. And he made that clear when he said that because he must have known what it meant for her as a black student to come to this very white city and not even be allowed to live on the campus of the university. That university recently built a gigantic residence hall that they have named Elizabeth Catlett Hall. Oh my gosh, that's so great. (laughs) So so the University of Iowa, I think, has realized that she's a really important... Alumni, one of the most, yeah, yeah, literally, probably their most important alumni, I'm sure. But I'm so intrigued to know. I mean, so fascinating about Grant Wood, and also just had no idea that his political views. I love that in such a localized way that he wants to show solidarity with Mm -hmm. people. But I'm really interested in this this kind of early work because, I mean, this was the 1930s, and I think what's so interesting as we go on throughout Elizabeth Catlett's career is the fact that she doesn't kind of trail off and follow trends, which happening abstract expressionism in New York and everything. She's really sticking to her own identity the entire time. Can you tell us about this early work and her early experience as an artist? I would say we could go back to some of her really, really early work when she was painting 
because of her work with Grant Wood, when he told her, take as your subject what you know best. And she said she made a painting of a black girl ironing because she said, well, I know how to do that. So working out of her own experience. And then her first major sculpture, which somehow got lost from the University of Iowa. Oh um, my gosh. If any of your listeners happen to find it, it's still being (laughs) looked for. A sculpture of a mother and child that she carved out of limestone. And so right away, she's thinking about how do I represent this experience? She herself was not yet a mother, but she was thinking about motherhood and particularly Black motherhood and the notion that there have been so many representations of mothers and children in the history of art. And she said she wanted to contest the notion of the universal in these representations of maternity that so often are white. And somehow that idea that universal and white are equated. So she represented a mother and child that clearly, from the anatomy of their faces, from their hair, are clearly a Black woman and child. And that sculpture, I mean, I've only seen pictures of it because it's lost. It's small, but it's monumental in the simplification of the forms and the way the mother holds the child. It's solid and it's strong and it's grounded. So in her earliest work, you see those same kind of principles of representation that she carried throughout her career. The one that I'm thinking of is limestone, and it would have been 1940, 41. And it would be lovely to see it in person someday. If it's ever yeah. found in my lifetime, I would go anywhere to see it. But in 1941, she also married Charles Wilbert White, who was a fellow artist from Chicago. And actually in the same year, he received a fellowship to study in the South. Then she was moving to New Orleans. I mean, how was her experience in the South and what work came out of this time? Well, she was teaching in the South. And indeed, when she met Charles White in Chicago, she was living with Margaret Burroughs. Margaret Burroughs, really, really important artist educator, activist, founder of a museum in Chicago, really one of the key cultural figures in Chicago history. And the two of them were living together, these young women, they were friends. And she, Margaret Burroughs, was good friends with Charles White. She was the one who introduced them. So again, there's this whole network. So then she goes off to teach in the South. Charles White comes with her. He has a grant to work on his mural at Hampton University. So they're traveling in the South. They're working in the South, experiencing the reality of the segregated Southern part of the United States. And at the same time, participating in this network of Black artists and cultural workers throughout the South, and also connecting through their art with ordinary people, because that's who she was working for. She had no sense then no illusion that her work would end up in major museums. She was thinking about making art for Black people and showing her work in community centers, schools, libraries, the places where ordinary people would go to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what art should be at the end of the day. It should transcend all those things and there should be no hierarchy. But I'm interested, how was she engaging with political art and politics at this time in her early career? She, at one point, had to support students of hers who were briefly jailed for moving the signs on one of the buses that were designated where Black people had to sit. So the signs were movable. So if white people wanted to sit 
anywhere in the front of the bus, the sign would just move further and further into the back, pushing the black people to the back of the bus. And because these signs were movable, the students moved them. And so she engaged legal support for those students. She herself resisted that. We hear about Rosa Parks refusing to move to the back of the bus. The Dillard students were doing that with Elizabeth Catlett's support back in the 40s. She often told the story of taking her students to see a Picasso exhibition at the New Orleans Museum of Art, which was located in a park that at the time, African-Americans weren't allowed in the park. It was a segregated park. So she arranged to have a bus take the students right to the steps of the museum on a day when the museum was closed to the public so that they wouldn't actually set foot in the park. They got off the bus, they alighted from the bus, went directly into the museum. For many of these students, it was their first time in an art museum Wow! because how could they get there if the the museum was in a park where they weren't allowed to be? Some of those students went on to become well-known artists. So Part of her commitment was making the art. Part of her commitment was also educating and mentoring young Black artists. So early you were talking about, you know, the movement she was associated with and her unwavering commitment throughout her life to the kind of art she was making. She also had this commitment to the next generations. So she would talk about Mexican art with young Black artists in the United States. She would talk about Black artists with young Mexican artists in Mexico. And so she was all about building those bridges, making sure that these artists knew about each other and knew that they were part of a lineage, that they had mm. that they had a legacy and that then yeah. they were going to become part of that and carry it on. Oh my gosh, I want to meet her so much. <laughs> if only she was around still. In her work in the 40s, she moved to New York and um, with her husband as well. And I mean, you know, in 1942, New York City, I mean, this was such a moment for art, especially in Harlem. I mean, did she engage? Was she friends with Langston Hughes? I mean, what was going on? She knew all of these people. She knew the artists. Wow. She knew Langston Hughes. She knew Paul Robeson. They lived in Harlem, and the school that she worked at was the George Washington Carver People's School, which was a school for working Black people. So imagine people who did domestic labor, who cleaned, who ran the elevators in the buildings that had elevators. So people who did that kind of labor at the end of their workday would come to the George Washington Carver School to learn about art, to learn about literature, to learn about music, to learn about economics, to take sewing classes. All of these classes were for working people. And so these major figures in Harlem were working at this school. The school also, of course, because it was a people's school, was investigated for its communist leanings. Ultimately, the school did close. But a lot of these, especially these projects for working people, these projects of kind of interracial solidarity of people on the left were suspect. You know, we think about the Cold War and that era of anti-communism in the United States as being the 1950s. It was starting in the 40s. And so Elizabeth Catlett came under that suspicion, which is partly why she chose to make her home in Mexico. You know, we have to remember she was young. We think of her as this you know, this elder, but Grand she was, yeah, she was, she was a young woman then. But I mean, she was just so determined from the start. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that she's in her early thirties, late twenties, and she's 
actually dedicating herself to these people, these working people. I think she's such an example for so many people in the world. One of my favourite works of hers was actually produced around this time in 1945, which again is that mother and child. What I find so interesting is that I've been to so many exhibitions about mother and children or whatever, but I haven't seen Elizabeth Catlett. And when you look at Mother and Child from 1945, it's as though she's rewriting the Madonna in Renaissance portraiture. And it's the fact that this was done in 1945, I mean, it could literally be done in 2020. This, and I think this is, again, while she, why she reminds me of Keta Kolvitz as well, because just the intensity and the emotion, and it's such a simplistic forms, and it's black and white, and it's just, there's so much in it. There's so much emotion. And it's an image she returns to it over and over and yeah. over again, claiming that space, right? If you think about the yeah. exhibitions where that work of hers isn't represented where we see so many of the white Madonna and child, even yes. though, you know, that's a whole other conversation. We've seen it all. How white was Mary actually? And so, you know, so she's challenging what does motherhood look like? Yeah. And where is that space? It's like she's demanding that space and claiming that space for these representations, whether it's in prints or paintings or sculpture. Why was it that she was so interested in printmaking specifically? I would say multiple reasons. One is that prints are reproducible. They're accessible. You can yeah. make multiple, the same reason Kate Kolvitz was. So yeah. <laughs> you can make multiples, you can distribute them for very little money. They don't cost a lot to make. And so if you want to make your work available to ordinary people, you don't want yeah. to make just one of it. You want to make hundreds so yeah. that you can sell them for very little money. You can give them away. You can donate them. They can be everywhere. And also you don't need the studio space that say working yeah. in oil paint requires. Certainly after she had children, Printmaking was her lifeline while her children were small. She couldn't work in sculpture on the dining room table, but you can make a print. Yeah. And then you can set it aside and go make dinner. So yeah. there are the practical reasons, but there are also those reasons of accessibility. And I, th I think that lineage of printmaking as a medium of social critique of protest. Yeah. So she's working in printmaking even before she goes to Mexico, but she was aware of the work of the Mexican printmakers. And once she goes to Mexico and becomes a member of the Taller de Grafica Popular, the People's Graphic Arts Workshop, yeah. that's when she really immerses herself in printmaking. I love that quote of hers. You know, she says, even though her work is, I mean, outrageously beautiful, she says the main purpose of her work was to convey social messages rather than pure aesthetics. And I love that. You know, everything that also when you're looking at a work by Elizabeth Catlett, She's telling you a story, but in a way that this is history and this is from my point of view and this is my lens. Exactly. And as she's conveying that history, she's thinking about what's the visual language to do that. So yep. it's not about beauty for its own sake, but it's about making sure that the image resonates and reads as clearly as possible for the audience. So in terms of technique, in terms of craft, you want to make yeah. the image as strong as you can. If you're talking about the beauty of Black women, you want to make sure that you have the technical capacity to convey that beauty as powerfully as you can. And so in 1946, she received the Rosenwald Fellowship and accompanied her husband to Mexico City. Can you tell us about this and what this did for her career? I mean, how did this change her life? So there were very few grants that were available to Black artists during those years in the United States. One of them was the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship. 
And this was money that was for artists. It was also for schools. A number of Black schools were funded by Julius Rosenwald. And his money came from the Sears Roebuck company. You know, this used to be like mail order catalogs before there was yep. the internet. So <laughs> Rosenwald made all this money and he sort of, well, this is more money than I need. And so he vowed to give it away. And so he was very concerned about the education of Black people, particularly in the South. He knew that the segregated Black schools had nowhere near the resources that white schools did. So that was where he wanted to put his money. And he also funded this fellowship program for Black artists. And so she wrote for a Rosenwald. In the first year, she was in New York City, and she was so caught up in her work at the Carver School that she said she just didn't have time to do her project. And her project was a series of prints and sculptures sculpture and paintings about Black women. And her idea was that she would show it throughout the South. So that was when she decided to go to Mexico. She knew about the printmakers. Of course, she knew about the muralists. So it was her grant. And why? So she was drawn to Mexico as a place for kind of political activism. Because if you think about it, this is the 40s in Mexico. We're still in such deep history. You know, this is the time of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. I mean, was she involved in politics in sort of Mexico City and everything? I would say she was carefully involved in politics because as a U.S. citizen living in Mexico, she could have been deported if she was engaged in political activity that the Mexican government didn't approve of. And there was a period when essentially doing the bidding of the United States government, the Mexican government was rounding up and deporting U.S. citizens on the left. But she was certainly politically involved because she was a member of the Tiodographica Popular, which was a political printmaking workshop. They did work for unions. They did anti-fascist work. They did work for all sorts of struggles that are, of course, political And she immersed herself in the work, particularly after she had children, because, as I said before, she wasn't able to do anything with sculpture. And she said that the taller was her lifeline during those years. They had meetings every Friday night, and these were meetings of the group where they would do kind of these group critiques of prints and make sure that the prints were conveying the meanings that they needed to convey in support of whatever group they were working for. So it was actually in their space that she created those 15 line cuts really her last solo exhibition until the early 70s. Wow. And I'm really intrigued that she also made these 15 lino cuts titled The Black Woman when she was living and working in Mexico. I mean, how was her experience living in this country, living and working in a different community to the one that she grew up with, especially when so much was going on politically in the United States in the 1960s with the civil rights movement? I mean, why be in Mexico at this time? So, Partly she chose to be in Mexico because of what was going on there in terms of the arts and in terms of the proliferation of socially engaged art following the years of the Mexican Revolution. So the murals and the printmaking. And that was so exciting that there was this community of artists centered in Mexico City and the printmakers she was working with were at the heart of that. So she initially went to Mexico thinking she would spend a year studying sculpture and working at the taller as a printmaker. And instead what happened was she realized her marriage was over. 
So after a few months, she went back to the United States. She filed for her divorce, and then she went back to Mexico and married one of the members of the printmaking workshop. So <laughs> one reason for her return to Mexico was personal, right? She fell in love. Yeah. Yeah. And another reason was this amazing art scene. There was nothing like it in the United States. There was probably nothing yeah. like it anywhere else on the planet at that point. Yeah. And another reason was what was happening politically in the United States right after World War II when the U.S. swung so far to the right and immediately began these anti-communist investigations. And I think she knew because of who she had been affiliated with in the U.S. that she would inevitably be questioned, that she would not be able to continue the kind of work that she was doing in terms of exhibitions, in terms of employment. It just, the United States would not have been a safe place for her. So for all of those reasons, she chose to make her home in Mexico. And there was quite a large expatriate community of people on the U.S. left in, in Mexico City at that time. I think it's so interesting. I mean, I had no idea that this, there was this whole kind of really politically engaged scene at that point because it, it, it makes so much sense that she would want to go there as well and also to probably have more freedom to do what she wanted to as well. But I mean, coming up to the civil rights movement in 1968 and 1969, she makes two really powerful works and particularly Black Unity, which is still referenced so much today, which is essentially this fist which is kind of clenching and it's just so powerful i mean how was her involvement in this sort of civil rights movement even though she was in mexico so in the years between when she goes to mexico in the 40s and the 60s when that happened basically a lot of the artists in the united states who were doing overtly political work were it wasn't so much that they went underground because people knew about it. Abstract expressionism came to the fore yeah. and the artists who were doing socially engaged work were really marginalized. And many of them were living in fear because there were people in the U.S. who lost their livelihoods, who were imprisoned. So there were real repercussions to being kind of noticed by the anti-communist forces in the United States. And anything that was associated with the people, with the left, fell under suspicion. And so people were afraid. And that's partly why we were talking earlier about Elizabeth Catlett not being well-known in the UK. And I was saying, well, there was a period yeah. when she wasn't well-known in the US. And I think that still echoes even today, because for several decades, she couldn't travel here. And so wow. she's doing work in Mexico that she couldn't have done here. Some people from the U.S. did go and visit her. Some of her work did come into the U.S., usually brought by friends who would bring it across the border. Another reason yeah. to make prints, because you can roll them up and carry them across yeah. the border. She <laughs> became a professor of sculpture at the most prestigious university in Mexico. Would have been impossible for a radical black woman in the United States yeah. at the end of the 1950s wow. yeah. would have been unheard of. She was the first woman art professor at this university, and she was challenged repeatedly by her male colleagues. And she said they accused her of all sorts of things. They said she would only teach about women. She would only show examples of African art. She had shown examples of African art to her students, and they said she was inept. And she said that was the accusation she found the most infuriating. Um, oh, and then my she, God. She started winning prizes in Mexico's 
national <laughs> sculpture competitions. And then, then she got some more respect. And then she people be- took notice. Yes. And she became the chair of the department. And a, a printmaking collective like that couldn't have yeah. survived in the United States during those years. Yeah. So she's doing this work that couldn't have happened here. And then because of her political involvements, she was essentially rounded up with a number of other expatriates at the end of 1950s. She's rounded up. She's in, briefly put in jail. She finally gets out of jail. And reali- And this was on the occasion of a railroad workers strike. And the Mexican government, which is becoming more and more conservative at this point yeah. and more beholden to the U.S., has rounded up these people. They're going to deport them. And this is why she applied for Mexican citizenship, because she realized she wouldn't be safe in Mexico. She was married to a Mexican, so she was able to get Mexican citizenship. She had three sons. And so she applies for citizenship. She gets it. She's immediately declared an undesirable alien by the United States, which is... Yes. So this is a category by which the U.S. State Department says you cannot enter the U.S. So she's on the list of now undesirable aliens. I know it sounds like from outer space. Oh, my God. So I know this is so, think about today, right? All of this just echoes with what's going on in the world right now. So you were asking about, you know, the civil rights movement and the black arts movement. She's watching all of that from her vantage point in Mexico because she's not allowed to come into the U.S. So she sees all of this going on, and she is deeply moved by what's happening in the United States, the protests. And she starts making art from that vantage point in solidarity with what's going on in the U.S. And she's also teaching young artists from the U.S., young radical artists who come down to study with her. I mean, she's just a total trailblazer amongst generations. It's incredible. And she is mentoring them. She is teaching them about the importance of art as a form of social protest. And so she's basically kind of helping grow the next generation across these national divides, even though she herself can't cross the border. When the Olympics happened in Mexico City in 1968, the one that you've probably seen, those famous images of the black athletes with their fists raised, yeah. when they're, the U.S. athletes yeah. when they're standing on the podium. So when she makes that image of the black fist, that resonates with what's going on in the U.S. And it also resonates with what's happening So Black Unity or Homage to My Young Black Sisters, the sculpture of the woman with the raised fist. It's a much more abstract piece than a number of her pieces. Her Malcolm X Speaks for Us, her print about the Black Panthers. So over and over and over again, she's doing this work where she's really grounded in the Black arts movement and is now claiming space for women in that predominantly male movement yeah I mean it just it <laughs> I can't believe I, I feel sort of cheated that I didn't know about her you know this much about her before because I think when you think of especially the time that we're living in now you know her art and the fact that she even raised this generation essentially so all those 
absolute trailblazers who are kind of heading up American museums. And, and they probably would have known Elizabeth Catlett. And the fact that, you know, she was someone who was the generation above them who fought her entire life, made art accessible for them, made it so everyone can be involved, put women at the centre of her images as well. I mean, just thinking about her later prints, I mean, my favourite work, apart from Mother and Child from 1945, is, you know, there's, there's Black Girl from 2004 and there's also Which Way from 1973. I mean, what was she kind of making towards the end of her life? I mean, particularly Which Way? I'd love to know a bit more about that. Well, she continued throughout her life to return to the same themes that we've talked about. Yeah. And she continued to experiment because she's an artist. So when she's thinking about Which Way, I mean, on one level, she's asking that question, that any of us are asking, where do I go next? Where do I yeah. go individually? Where do I go as part of a collectivity that's thinking about yeah. making the world a more just place? How can I think about color? How can I also work with images in the media, right? She's looking at magazines. She's looking at books. She's looking at newspaper photographs. She's thinking all the time about these images that are out there in the world. She's thinking about the feminist movement. She's thinking about the Black women's movement. All of this is informing the kind of art that she's making. And she's also thinking about how can I use abstract visual language? She often said abstract art was born in Africa. So for her, this is another aspect of being a Black artist is drawing upon that legacy. And so you see that in work that she's doing all the way through, even as she's doing these highly representational works of art and drawing upon that tradition of social realism, she's pushing it and she's thinking about expression. Yeah. And I love the fact that in every single work as well, you know, her goal is not just to create art that anyone can understand but it's also so uplifting and I think you know when you look at these prints from as early as the 1930s you know there was this woman who put women and particularly black women at the center of the artwork and it's just she's a, a kind of she's such a trailblazer because the history of art also doesn't teach us this woman also was one of the foremost leaders of her day which is why I feel we need to know about her in the UK and I think there's so much that we can learn from her as well I mean what do you think I mean, she really sadly passed in 2012, but I mean, at the grand old age of 97, what do you think her legacy is? I think it's all of, all of what you're saying. Her legacy is the space for young artists to think about what it is that they want to do, to think about how can they use their art to work for justice, to illuminate a way forward, right? That idea of which way. How can they use their art to speak what hasn't been spoken and to bring other people into that conversation who haven't been brought into that conversation and to empower the generation that'll come after them. How can the art that's being made now speak to what happened in the past and bring that forward? Because that history was so important to her. That's why when she did the series that was renamed The Black Woman in the 60s, part of that is her experiences and the experiences of women of her generation, it's also about the past and it's about the future. The last image in that series is my right is a future of equality. And so she's thinking about the past, the present, the future. And I think that's her legacy is that she is making sure that that past isn't forgotten. She's making sure that her own time, which is now our past, isn't forgotten and opening up that way for the future for those next artists who do look to her 
At the same time, I think we have to recognize that the fact that she did spend decades in Mexico and not able to travel to the U.S., she couldn't come back till the 70s when the State Department granted her a very limited visa to come back for an exhibition she was having at the Studio Museum in Harlem. So for decades, she's kind of out of view in the U.S. And then when she comes back, she's in the view of the Black arts community, but the more general still white dominated art world wasn't paying attention, wasn't giving her her due. And what do you think that you learned from her? What does she teach you? Because I know that you knew her well. I would say what she taught me is the fundamental importance. I keep coming back to those words, solidarity and empathy, that Mm. neither one is enough without the other one. There's heart in that work. And there's heart in the work of activism, of teaching, of art making, and all of that is there. And I think I, I mean, I learned a lot about art from her. I learned about history. I think she was kind of a mentor to me in finding my own voice and my own way. Yeah. She was fearless. She was fearless. I can only hope that I have learned some, some margin <laughs> of her fearlessness and solidarity and empathy. Fantastic. Melanie, I mean, this has just been the most incredible and insightful conversation about a woman who I want to see in every single museum across the world. I think, you know, that's another thing about her work. I think it transcends movement. It transcends time. It transcends culture. And I think there's such a kind of universality to her work that anyone of any part of the world can relate to. And I hope that her work is seen by more people. I know that the work that you're doing to make women (laughs) artists more visible is part of that. And so I, I commend you for what you're doing. And I hope that you'll be part of those efforts to keep bringing her work to the world. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests of their chosen artist, what would they say to them? But I do know that you obviously knew Elizabeth very well. But if you could ask her or say something to her right now, what would it be? Oh my goodness. The most obvious thing I would say to her is thank you. Yeah. It really would be. And I know that's not a lot, but it is a lot because I feel that she gave the world so much. I would want her to know that her work is being seen by more people. The Brooklyn Museum in New York City is planning to do a major retrospective of her work. And it's, really? Yes. It's so oh long gosh. overdue. And I wish she could know that because she fought so hard to open up these spaces, not for herself. I mean, certainly her work moved into those spaces, but she wasn't doing it just for herself. And I would want to be able to tell her that she will be remembered and that the artists who come after her are carrying it on. Fantastic. Melanie, I can't thank you enough. This has been absolutely incredible. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so very much for having me. This has been an absolutely delightful, thrilling, energizing conversation. Thank you all so much for listening to the 40th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Melanie Herzog on Elizabeth Catlett. I am completely blown away by Elizabeth Catlett's work and trailblazing attitude to work and have linked to the works discussed in the show notes where you can find everything there. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Abba Miller. And if you have been enjoying the Great Women Artists podcast so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 